Bible says to bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And as we go to prayer tonight, I want us to remember uh, uh, Kathy Davis here. Uh, she takes care of both her, her mother and her aunt, and they're both at, uh, in the nursing home at Glen Manor. And we have other uh, of our folks there as well, and they're both on hospice. And you can imagine the, the heavy burden she carries. And let's, let's pray for her as we go to the Lord in prayer. Our text is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're looking at the qualifications of leadership in the church. We began this study last Lord's Day evening, the characteristics of an elder or a pastor. And may the Lord prepare our hearts. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do desire to lift one another up in prayer. And there's so many in our fellowship who need our prayers. But I pray for, for Kathy tonight, Lord, just especially that you'd give her a, a measure of grace that that is equal to the calling that you have upon her at this, at this time in her life. We know that your goal is to bring your children home. And yet, Lord, that process on our part is often uh, mixed and, and heavy. And, and uh, there are so many uh, aspects of it, both emotionally, Lord, and physically. And I pray you'd give her the strength and grace and help. Now, Lord, we as your people are gathered to hear from your word. And, Lord, how humbling it is to stand and and to, to teach your word always, but especially this portion of Scripture. And I pray that I would be the pastor that you would have me to be for these dear people. Bless us and encourage us, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. When it comes to leadership, people have various perceptions and ideas of what constitutes a leader. Field Marshal Bernard Law Montgomery, one of England's most distinguished military leaders in the World War II, made a list of some seven things. He said a leader should see the big picture and not just become bogged down with details, that he should not be petty. He must choose men well. He must trust those under him and let them do their jobs without interference. He must have the power of decision. He should inspire confidence, and he should have a proper sense of religious truth and acknowledge it to his troops. What an amazing thing for a general to say. And then John R. Mott, an American leader among students at the turn of the century, asked a series of questions to define what would be uh, the right kind of leader. Does he do little things well? Has he learned the meaning of priorities? How does he use his leisure time? Has he intensity? Has he learned to take advantage of momentum? Has he the power of growth? What is his attitude toward discouragement? How does he face impossible situations? And what are his weakest points? Well, we could go on and on. I'm sure there are other lists and their leadership manuals are, are forever in books on leadership about the, the opinions of what a leader is. But the truth is God has laid down his own characteristics for those who would lead his church, his pastor teachers, his shepherds in the New Testament. And we see at the top of the list here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is a true saying. We've looked at this first verse. If a man desire the office of bishop, of pastor, of overseer, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. At the top of the list of the requirements, and there are several here, the, the first requirement is blameless. And that description is often caused some perplexity to some people. Literally, it means above reproach. The Greek particle, uh, particle day, in, in the word, means that this is an imperative. 
suggestion. It is absolutely imperative that those who would oversee God's church be above reproach. Richard Baxter, who many, many years ago, my father-in-law gave me a slim volume. I learned later that it was an abridged version of the, the greater work that Baxter wrote in 1657 called The Reformed Pastor. And my, there's not a, it's one of those books that you open any place and begin to reading, and you just almost have to put it down for a while, and just you can only read a few words at a time. And, and you'll see as I read you this excerpt from Richard Baxter, that that amazing Puritan preacher of the past. And this is what he said to his fellow shepherds: "Take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine, and lest you lay such stumbling blocks before the blind as may be the occasion of their ruin." lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues and be the greatest hinderers of the success of your own labors. One proud, surly, lordly word, one needless contention, one covetous action may cut the throat of many a sermon and blast the fruit of all that you have been doing. Take heed to yourselves, lest you live in those sins which you preach against in others." And lest you be guilty of that which you daily condemn, will you make it your work to magnify God and when you have done dishonor him as much as others? Will you proclaim Christ a governing power and yet condemn it and rebel yourselves? Will you preach his laws and willfully break them? If sin be evil, why do you live in it? If it be not, why do you dissuade men from it? If it be dangerous, how dare you to venture on it? If it be not, why do you tell men so? If God's threatenings be true, why do you not fear them? If they be false, why do you needlessly trouble men with them and put them into such frights without a cause? Do you know the judgment of God that they who commit such things are worthy of death? And will you yet do them? Thou that teachest another, teachest not thou thyself? That thou sayest a man should not commit adultery or be drunk or covetous, art thou such thyself? That thou makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? What? Shall the same tongue speak evil that speakest against evil? Shall those lips censure and slander and backbite your neighbor that cry down these and the like things and others? Take heed to yourselves, lest you cry down sin and yet do not overcome it lest while you seek to bring it down in others, you bow to it and become its slaves yourselves. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. To whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. O brethren, it is easier to chide at sin than to overcome it. The bishop must be blameless. The Greek word means not able to be held. And the context means that if charges are labeled against him, these charges will not hold. They're unfoundable. They're not, they're not true. If he be above reproach, he cannot be arrested and, and held as if he were a criminal because the charges cannot stick. There is nothing with which to accuse him. They're, they're, they're groundless. In Titus, the... Guidelines given in Titus, uh, uh, very similar here. The word in the English is translated blameless again, but it's a totally different word. And it's the word unreprovable. He is, it is, is in a present state of being above reproach. It does not mean 
that he is sinless. You know that without me having to say that. That is not what the, the scripture is saying, that those who pastor churches shouldn't be sinless. That is not possible. But that his life has not been characterized by some sinful defect that would disqualify him from the high standard of godly conduct with which the office requires. He must be a pattern for the church to follow. The New Testament makes no bones about it. Unapologetically does the apostle tell those who are under his leadership, follow me, mimic me. He must be a pattern. Hebrews thirteen seven says, Remember them that have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. And in first Peter chapter five, verse three, neither be as as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. It is hard to be influenced by your pastor if you're to be influenced by me. It is quite difficult to be influenced by me if you're not under my preaching, under my influence. And so there's a twofold duty here. There is the duty for me to influence you and your duty to be around me and under the preaching of the word of God so that you can be influenced by the word that comes forth from the, the pastor. The pastor's behavior should not give the enemies of the church ammunition to use to attack its reputation. By the way, neither should your behavior be such that the enemies could take your behavior and accuse the church as well. First, pastors are targets of Satan. We are on the front line of defense. We who would watch for your souls and intercede on behalf of you before the throne of grace. We who search the deep things of God, the truths of God, and, and bring forth the whole counsel of the word of God. He would like to shut the mouths and destroy the influence of every godly pastor. Just like soldiers who are on the first line of combat, the line of defense, they are, are susceptible to the, the brunt of the enemy's blows. And you must remember that about your pastor and the pastors here in the leadership of, of the church. Satan studies to know our weaknesses and will capitalize upon them. We can look at that and see that in the lives of the, the leaders in, the, in the, the Bible. For example, in the life of Moses, who the Holy Spirit says was the, the meekest man who ever lived outside of our Lord. And yet Moses was uh, forbidden by the Lord to enter the land of promise for a sin of pride. Uh, an outburst that was absolutely the opposite of meekness. And we can call it righteous indignation or whatever, but the, the bottom line is that, jo that, that Moses pitched a fit, did he not? That million-member congregation, the church in the wilderness, got on his last nerve, and he had suffered long with them. You can imagine what a job that was. And the Lord told Moses to speak to the rock. He'd already stricken the rock. Remember, the New Testament tells us what that rock was a symbol of, right? That rock was Christ. No mistake about it. Christ was smitten once. Moses smote the rock the first time. In obvious, this was known to he and the people. And the second time, he smote the rock again in anger to the Lord's people. And the Lord, this meekest man, in that one dark moment, disqualified himself for leading his church, his congregation, into the land of promise. And so 
our strongest points. Satan looks for weak moments. And there's no, no, un, leave no unguarded place, the, the old song says. Secondly, not only are pastors targets of Satan, but secondly, when a, when a shepherd falls to a far greater degree than a regular church member, when any believer falls, it is a horrendous thing. It does great damage to the cause of Christ, but, but the greater effect on the sheep is when a pastor falls. Third, a pastor knows biblical truth and he has no excuse he knows the wiles of Satan and has taught them and has labored long handling the things of God. And so he's without excuse and should live by what he preaches, as Richard Baxter so aptly described it. And so he receives greater chastening when he sins. Pastors need an abundance of God's grace. And I covet your prayers. You, your duty and, and my duty is a covenant one where we pray for one another and you should say, what do I need to pray for you, Brother Lamb? You need to pray for great grace uh, because of the, the position that the Lord has called me to and for the Lord's blessing and power and that he would keep me right before him. I covet that. And since we have a greater responsibility and influence, the Lord holds us to a higher degree. We must protect ourselves by spending much time in God's word and in prayer, not just in a routine Uh, way of preparing for the next message but as we study the word of god and delve into it and search out the truths it becomes truth by which we live by and uh, we assimilate it and live it before you first timothy 4 verse 6 says they should be good ministers of jesus christ nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine by the way the same thing that nourishes up the pastor is the same thing that nourishes you up. Good faith and good doctrine which comes from his word. Faith cometh by, help me out church, hearing and hearing by the word of God. Privately and publicly, the Lord builds our faith in that way. Psalm 119 verse 11 is not for the Sunday school boys across the street. The little girls who are in, in the waters in Sunday school, thy word have I hid in my heart, why? That I might not sin against thee. The local church is to be committed to maintaining godly leadership in every area, and we must commit ourselves to it. What then are these areas in the pastor's life where he is to be a pattern? He is to be blameless, above reproach. He is to be a pattern then of good works. And the first thing that the Holy Spirit records here to me is a curious thing, and yet it is not when we see the importance of it. What about his, in his life, what areas in his life is it to be a pattern to the flock, an example, and above reproach? The first thing that the Holy Spirit uses in a list here for us is in his marriage. He must be above reproach with other women and all women. A bishop then must be blameless, and then the qualification, the husband of one wife. Now, admittedly, there are, people have difference of opinions about these qualifications and what this literally says. You can rest assured of that. But it, we must understand what he is uh, telling us here. I have a close relationship with six women in my life. Hold on. Just wait a minute. I'll describe that, that relationship to you. More than any other female relationships, foremost is the love of my life. My wife, Kathy. I fell in love with her, as I told you this morning, when we were seniors in high school. I was 18 years old. 
And I knew she was the one for me, and I've loved her from that moment to this. It is a privilege to be her husband. I heard someone ask Dr. John MacArthur one time about his accountability. They said, How, who keeps you accountable? And he said, I am married to a woman who expects me to live at home when I preach in the pulpit. That's my first and foremost accountability, not, not least of which is the, the elders and the other leaders of the church. But uh, my wife help, helps keep me accountable, and we, we have that kind of relationship. Anyone who knows anything about me at all knows that Kathy has my entire heart and being. Uh, there are other ladies, though, in my life as well. My, uh, my daughter, my daughter-in-law, who is like a daughter to me, and my two sisters. My oldest sister texted me this morning and said, Brother, preach the word of God when you enter your pulpit today. So often, my other sister will call and say, Brother, I'm listening to you. Preach the word. And how precious they are to me. And I have affectionate names. So if one of my sisters call, I usually answer the phone and say, Hello, darling, how are you doing? And uh, that's just our relationship. We're very close. My precious mother, uh, who's in heaven, uh, what a privilege it was to have that kind of mother. And I would not be here today apart from the grace of God and the mother that I had. My my precious mother-in-law, who told Kathy if she didn't marry me, she would adopt me and I'd be her brother. And so I guess that's why uh, Kathy married me. And now my three, almost four granddaughters, we have tea parties and they've got me absolutely snowed and wrapped around their little fingers and and uh we have a very precious relationship the two knothead uh, grandsons we do as well but those little girls they they uh, there's something else the bible teaches that i should be very careful about my relationships with women and you can watch a man how he treats his wife and his daughters and those women closest to him to know his relationship with women and how he treats other women. In fact, I would say a good determination of the, the type of man the pastor is is to look at his wife and look in her face and see if you see a reflection of what he lives and says and does and her support of that. And so this is a very important thing. And the Bible lists this first. And I've gotten a little personal here, and I very rarely mention personal things, although I live before you very openly, and you know that Kathy and I are very real people with a very real marriage, with differences of opinion, and, and we work it out, and, uh, but we, we love each other very, very dearly. And I should be above reproach in my relationships with women uh, and no cause for concern. I'm never alone with a woman other than one of these uh, about two Saturdays ago, one of my, my nieces called me, and uh, they're very precious as well. And she said, Uncle Chris, would you just take me around uh, this, this Saturday to all the, the thrift stores you go to and tell, show me all the places that you go? And I said, well, okay. If you, I, I babysat her when she was a little girl. Now she's a, a, a mother of teenage children. So we set out, and we began to I said, are you sure you want to do this? And she said, oh, yes. And I kind of got the feeling she'd never been to the places that I go to in her, her sheltered life there in Tuscaloosa. But we went, and uh, she was wide-eyed, and her daughter was like, we really go in here? We, do, we, do, we touch all this stuff? And I said, oh, yeah, you dig for treasure. And uh, we went into one of my favorite places, and you know how it is. This is so rarely am I with someone other than my wife. But here I was with my niece and her daughter, and I walked to the thrift store, and there was a man that saw me coming in, and he had been attending the church. He's a visitor of the church here. And the look on his face was like, what is this? You know. 
And so uh, we went over to a chair, and she said, do you think this would make a good desk chair? And I picked it up. I said, no, not at all. That's, that's, you don't want to spend your money on that. It's, it's about to fall apart. And I showed her all the reasons why she talked her out of, out of getting it. And uh, so he came up to me, I, you know, and he said, well, hello, Pastor Lamb. How are you doing? I said, oh, I'm fine. And I've introduced him to my niece and, and, and so forth. And he looked somewhat relieved. But and, and as well, that would have been a, a, a puzzling thing, wasn't it? And I, I felt like he, he needed some, some explanation. Now, this is not being picky or, or that kind of thing. These, this is very serious business, is it not? Because it's the first thing the Holy Spirit lists for us, for us. He should be the husband of one wife. But what does that mean? How does it, what does that mean? The Greek literally means, if you wanted to translate it from the Greek, is a one-woman man. And more than, more than his marital status, now people will want to split hairs about the marital status of the pastor, and we can get into all of that. But in the context and the intent of the scripture is, what is his marital status? Not his marital status, but this is referring to the pastor's moral, physical behavior with women. The Bible tells us very clearly what that should be. Many men are married only once or not one-woman one, one men. Many with one wife are unfaithful to that wife. While remaining married to one woman is commendable, someone has written, it is no indication or guarantee of moral purity. Obviously, the reason for the emphasis is put on here at the top of the list is because this is the area where men can be very susceptible and, and the Satan will, will allow and, and use that. And so we have to be, be careful. I'm never out to eat with a woman who's not my wife. I'm never in a car along with a woman who's not my wife. If there's a woman in my office, the, the door is open or the window is up, and all you ladies who come to my office know that. In fact, if anybody comes to my office to talk to me, the window is open. Everybody can come by and look in and see what is going on there. Why? I'm just be picky and, and old, old fogey and all that kind of no. I am to be blameless. I am to live in such a way that no charges would stick against me if they were brought against me. And all who knew anything about the situation could see that everything's open and above board. I owe that to my wife, first of all, my Lord, and my wife, who I gave marriage vows here 35 years ago, and to my daughters, my daughter-in-law, my, my granddaughters, and all of you ladies of the church. Now, obviously, this is a... a, a very important thing of the Holy Spirit wouldn't be here. This is not forbidding polygamy because a man would not even be allowed to be a member of the church if he had more than one wife. So it's not saying having being married to more than one woman at a time. It was unheard of even in Ephesus where the, the letter is being written uh, among the, the, the Gentiles that was not practiced at that time, especially about, uh, from those in the church. Uh, he couldn't even be a church member if he practiced polygamy, let alone to be a leader of the church. And so Paul must mean something more uh, or other than that than since this, th th that was a given. Polygamy was not common at Ephesus, and it was, not, it was uncommon uh, throughout Roman society. So we know he's not – that goes without saying, in other words. I, it's kind of interesting that we, we preached this morning about Joseph and the multiple wives but, uh, and, and the qualifications for a pastor. But that was uh, going without saying that, that, that polygamy would not have been tolerated. It was not part of the uh, even first-century Judaism. It was unheard of. Others, however, we were surveying the meaning of the husband of one wife. Others have taught, 
and this may be a new one for you. You may not have heard it put in this way, but we might as well go ahead and examine all the different views. And I'm sure my wife would have this particular view. The, the uh, others have said that the, taking the position that, that once a pastor has been married, should his wife die, he should not remarry. That is a very, in fact, my, my favorite Bible expositor, New Testament Bible expositor, the renowned Kenneth Weist, who is absolutely, the, in my opinion, one of the, the leaders of, of New Testament uh, teaching uh, around the turn of the century, uh, he, he says this about this portion of Scripture. The nouns are without the definite article indicating that character is stressed. The teaching is that a bishop can only marry once, he says. Expositor's Greek Testament says the better to ensure that the bishop be without reproach, his leading characteristic must be self-control. He must have a high conception of the sexes, a married man who, if his wife dies, does not marry again. Men whose position is less open to criticism may do this without discredit, but the bishop or the pastor must uphold high ideals. Alford says that the words do not mean that the bishop should have only one wife at a time, as I've already mentioned, since polygamy was unknown in the early church. Also, how far such a prohibition is binding today, now that the Christian life has entered into another and totally different phase, is open to question one version says married only once. And I just share that with you to show you how far some people take the, 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 the injunction, the husband of one wife. I personally don't think that it, that it forbids a pastor uh, to remarry once his wife dies. However, that would not be a wrong or safe interpretation of the, 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 the Greek. It is a very strong saying here. Again, the scripture is speaking, though, of moral character and behavior, not a particular marital status. If that were the case, if it was speaking of marital status, then, then Paul, uh, for example, single men can pastor. And it may be unusual to us, but throughout history, there have been some notable pastors who, who never married. And if, he, if he's condemning that, he's condemning himself. And he would himself be disqualified from, from being a, a, a bishop. And so that's not what he's saying. The standard for the bishop, the pastor, should be held high. What kind of man does this describe? Well, a one-woman man is devoted to his wife in his heart. And it's obvious. With his mind, his heart, and with his body. He loves and desires only her. He maintains purity in thought and in action. It will be obvious it will be clear to others that he is devoted to her. All men, but especially those in leadership, uh, must be extremely careful, as we've already said, in, in their relationship with others, especially women. Proverbs 6.32 gives, gives this injunction, But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and a dishonor shall he get. And his reproach shall not be wiped away. Paul states that, that failure to keep the body pure and controlled results in, in being disqualified. In fact, his prevailing prayer was that lest he preach to others, he would be a castaway. And in First uh, Corinthians chapter 9, he says this. Know ye not that they that run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So, that, so run that you may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate. The word temperate means self-controlled. 
in all things. And that's one of the qualifications that we'll see uh, of the pastor. He must be someone who is temperate, self-controlled. Now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. And he's speaking of these who run the races and the Olympic races just to receive a laurel wreath at the end of the contest. They do it to receive that kind of crown. But we, as believers, for an incorruptible crown, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, and he's speaking of our Christian race, the, the life of the Lord, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, not just as a shadow boxer about practicing for the match, but I keep under my body. What a statement. What a key of Christian living and, and sanctification. Your soul is saved. Your soul is housed in a body. And there's no such thing as serving the Lord apart from serving him in this body. And so the temple, the body, is very, is very important to oversee it and to keep it under this thing of, of almost, as Paul was saying, and not as the aesthetics and those who would uh, beat themselves and that kind of thing. But I keep, under my, I keep after my body. And the question arises as we study this portion of Scripture, who's in charge? Are you in charge or is your body in charge? Who, who makes the decisions on a day-by-day basis? You or your body? I keep under my body and bring it in, into subjection that lest by any means when I have preached to others the great tendency and the tragedy and the possibility for all those who stand in, in God's stead, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway and really that word there means disqualified, set aside. Paul feared that worse than he feared Satan, worse than he feared the, the Roman emperor, worse than he feared the Sanhedrins and the beatings and all that they could do to him. You know he feared worse than anything? That he would disqualify himself by carelessness in his life and in his body. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Has there ever been a day where marriage is absolutely being destroyed? And I say that the institution of marriage is, is being destroyed and as it is in our, our day. And uh, sad, sad things. And we as God's people must hold the standard high. We must be faithful to our vows and, 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 and to love our wives and to love our husbands and, and to go by the biblical uh, precedent set before us. For one thing, we have a generation following us. They're not going to find out how to do that from Hollywood, are they? Or from the, the, the world around us. But never has that been the case. You see, when Paul wrote the, the, the guidelines for marriage to the, the New Testament believers at Corinth, for example or Ephesus, the whole goal of the purity and sanctity in a marriage was unthought of, unheard of. Oh, there was marriages, but in the secular society, it was just a, an arrangement, it was just a, a, a form, and it, it was not looked at as the, what we view marriage whatsoever. In fact, in, in Rome at the time of the New Testament, I mean, divorce was just, it was even more common than it is in our generation today. And it was just like, just at the flip of a wrist, you know, to, to, to marry and divorce. And, and it, that's not what we're capitalizing on here. We're capitalizing on us being what we ought to be. 
when we take vows, when we pledge our, our, our lives and our love and our bodies to one another, this is a serious thing before God and before the church. And at the top of the list, he tells us, a bishop must be blameless in his marriage. And then the other qualifications will follow. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to these serious matters, these important matters that are very sobering before us. And we pray that all of us, every man in our, our church, and every woman in our church, every marriage would be a strong marriage, Lord, that would mirror the relationship that you have with your church. Your word says that you gave your life. You love the church and gave yourself for it. May we live this out in our relationships as we model this godly behavior, submitting ourselves one to another and to you. We pray that we would live before our, our children, Lord, that they would marry in the Lord and know this blessed and wonderful gift that you've given to us. We pray in Jesus' name.